Welcome to Make No Bones. I'm Emily Barton Altman. And I'm Toby Altman. Make No Bones is a podcast about poets and poetry. Each episode, we ask a poet to read a poem and talk about it. They tell us how they wrote it and explain how it reflects the broader priorities of their work. This week's episode features Sarah Wainscott. Hi, I'm Sarah Wainscott. Sarah Wainscott's recent work appears in Diagram, the journal Petra, Powder Keg, The Fairy Tale Review, Boat, The Collapser, and elsewhere. Her chapbook of Seven Lings is forthcoming from Dancing Girl Press, Fall 2017. She co-curates Wit Rabbit, an intergenre reading series in Chicago. We talked to Sarah about her sonnet, The Sky Does Not Come Down For Me. The poem moves through a distinctly Midwestern landscape, investigating the duplicity and the possibility of language. It is, she writes, an insecurity system, and her work examines and exploits that insecurity. I got into writing because there wasn't a television in the house where I grew up, I think. So I was turning to books all the time and drawing things and listening to music. And so, I don't know. I used to have a Garfield notebook that I would fill with stories that I wrote when we were sort of too young to do something like this. My best friend and I created like an embarrassingly large number of profiles for a pretend computer dating service. I mean, this was in the 80s, so I'm not sure like what we were thinking (laughs) or like we didn't know what we were doing. But I guess maybe I should have been a fiction writer, but... Um, there was always music on at my house. I had my own Fisher-Price record player, and I would listen to the Sound of Music soundtrack and Burl Ives, and um, Woody Guthrie was always on in my house. (laughs) My dad would play the guitar, and so I think just that combination of um, thinking up stories and making up my own little songs sort of and, and being bored a lot, <laughs> just deep boredom, all turned into in, being interested in writing poetry. It's something I kind of have always done, more or less. I don't remember not doing it. In high school, I was really obsessed with Tennyson, and I still love Tennyson. And I memorized his poem, Ulysses, which is a very long poem. And so I used to just sort of mutter that to myself. And I started writing a lot of just, I don't know, kind of sad adventure poems. And I showed them to um, someone that I trusted. And he really encouraged me to write a book someday. And I thought, that does sound like a great idea. And I had some really encouraging teachers Um, in college and kind of on a whim. I thought I would teach English in Japan. I was applying for the JET program, but then I also just thought, um, maybe I'll get an MFA in poetry. I'm not really sure what that is, but it seems like a fun way to spend two years. So I just shot off like three applications. It was really sad. Um, And I happened to get into graduate school for poetry really unprepared, really underread. And that was kind of a good way to do it. It was a way of being in this arena where everyone knew everything, or so it seemed to me, and to just try to 
I don't know, just get dumped into this cacophony of words and try to swim out of it was really lovely. I think I'm still sort of swimming out of it. I think Chicago was the place where I really finally figured out that I was writing poems that worked. So even though I've lived other places and wrote poems in those places, I think I do a better job explaining that time in the memory of the poem than I do actually than when I was actually writing poems in those places. Um, but I think of myself as being very strictly Midwestern. I, I feel really connected to Chicago and the city and for a long time I lived where I could walk to the lake and that's such a place of inspiration to me. It's just so moody and wild and it's got the city anchored to it in a way that makes them both seem alive to each other in a different way. I, I don't know. I like that wildness and the juxtaposition of the two different kinds of wildness, right? The the crazy civilized piles that are downtown and then the just infinite seeming suburban and exurban scatter and all of that against this like wild puddle. That's great to me. I guess my work takes off the most when I can find some sort of form for it. So in this case, I started writing these sonnets. I decided to try a crown of sonnets, which seemed um, kind of impossible. And that really sustained my interest for a long time. I love working, well, maybe experimenting with form is a better way. These aren't necessarily iambic pentameter rhymed sort of contraptions. Um, but, you know, I love the way that form sets a limit. And similarly, I mean, I guess my whole life is about limits in some ways, right? There's only so much one person can do as she engages the world and tries to figure out just how to live and how to act. Um, how to teach my kids parenting is, I don't know, I think I'm my best parent when I'm able to set limits or able to break the right rules. So I guess I find a lot of connection between being a mom and trying to use language to make poems. Take the sonnet, for example, the form that I'm experimenting with here. I thought a lot about what made a sonnet a sonnet. Working with the sonnet, I wanted to have these recognizable 14-line structures. Um, I don't know, I think I'm a pretty iambic poet. I, I'm not sure why. I think I just, it's very pleasurable, I guess. Um, but these aren't strictly iambic, of course, in any way. They're certainly not um, rhymed, even though I love rhyme. And so trying to figure out ways to push the definition of the sonnet, but keep it recognizable was interesting to me. Ultimately, I don't think I pushed it very far in terms of form, but something that I became increasingly excited about was trying to contain a lot of different moving parts in only 14 lines. And so, for this poem in particular, I'm talking about 
poems. I'm talking about an essay I was teaching. I'm talking about putting my kids to bed. Um, but this isn't a poem that takes things very far outside. There's other poems in the manuscript that really tried to reach to space and through time. I got interested in time travel for a little while <laughs> while writing this. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that's, for me, my favorite poems, what poetry does best is taking ideas that don't belong together and then saying, of course they do, and putting them together. And it still gets to make sense, right? If we're thinking of language and of language as a way to represent truth as something that maybe can't possibly happen, then it's really amazing that poetry gets to go beyond those limitations of sense, right? If I'm approaching this as a teacher of writing, I wouldn't be able to identify the main idea, perhaps, per se. Um, if I were running for office, this might be nothing but a string of lies. But in a poem, it gets to be its own little, I don't know, apartment building. I think that's great. Sort of part of the larger thinking behind the poem, the manuscript, everything I'm doing right now is processing the past years of my life in which I've watched my kids gain language and say amazing things as they acquire words and figure out how to use them. And then at the same time, I'm watching my dad lose all of the words that he knows. So <laughs> that sort of problem of just how words work in the brain is really curious to me, I think. And then there's the larger problem that I don't know if the manuscript touches on this, but there's the larger problem of the way that words work in the political sphere and in the media and this idea that maybe words don't mean anything at all, right? Like the word literally means exactly the literal thing and now it also means metaphorically and I think that's really lovely. <laughs> I'm not one to prescribe meanings to words but also that's so special and so dangerous. I don't know it's really electrifying. The sky does not come down for me though I have called for it to meet me at the lake. The ice has ragged edges, like a pinhole photo. Rilke's panther holds me and a picture in its heart. When I'm reading books or circling words in student work, a paragraph is a fence and a fence is a neighbor. Some electrify, some lay messed up for weeks. Even if you don't capture it, a word is not a wild animal. A mind could be a fence, a code punched into a worn keypad, or cracked an insecurity system, a child's bed with clip-on sides, just enough to keep her there, the little lambs waiting to be counted. Come to Chicago. I'm inside because the ice 
is the frame of glass between me and peace. This episode of Make No Bones was produced and edited by Toby and Emily Altman in Chicago, Illinois. The music for this episode is by Toby Altman. If you like what we do, check out our website, makenobonespodcast.org, for all of our episodes. Or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And please consider rating us in iTunes. It really helps.